Hello and welcome to our final episode of Season 3 where we've been exploring 70s movies and today we're going to end this season with one of the greats and that being said the other nine have been equally iconic and considered the best in their chosen genre so today we're going to finish with a movie that's considered a classic one of the best films ever made that both kick-started one of the best actors in the world and also one of the best directors in this world in this bleak tale of loneliness and the eerie backdrop of a dark cosmic new york city it's the 1976 classic taxi driver directed by martin scorsese and starring robert de niro sybil shepherd jodie foster and harvey keitel the film is pretty much the first attempt of martin scorsese to discover his cinematic style and vision in contemporary cinema and it ended up being one of the most important influential movies ever made The film follows ex-veteran Travis Bickle as he embarks to sleeping hours as a taxi driver in the darkness of New York City. As the movie goes on, he becomes infatuated with a woman who he passes while driving his cab in the hope of wooing her. After some hope of maybe a relationship or of any means, the woman soon leaves him because of his irregularity and just introvert style of talking and Travis starts his inevitable destructive path of mental and physical loneliness and where he eventually decides to assassinate a public figure at the end of the movie. The movie itself explores a handful of interesting themes, masculinity, existentialism, loneliness, what it is to fit in, But what must be explored is the vision Scorsese decided to go for embarking on this journey he wanted to take audiences to with the use of Travis Bickle. Paul Schreider wrote the screenplay, which was basically a memoir of his life, of this tough time he was going through alone in a big place, no interaction whatsoever. And it just so happened the screenplay fell in the right hands at the right time. Scorsese just came off doing his first film, Mean Streets, and was given the opportunity to direct the screenplay and really played on the hidden depths of the world and words of Paul Schreiber. Along with the beautiful score of Bernard Herrmann and the outstanding performances from Robert De Niro, the film is considered one of the best American films ever made. The film dropped four Oscar nominations in 76, winning none of them, but it cemented itself in history as an instant classic, playing on the thoughts of audiences like a splinter in your mind, really hitting a nerve with moviegoers, a nerve that hasn't even been thought about any artistic filmmakers at the time to even delve into. There's no way to really emphasize what this movie does when you watch it. Some has called it rather hypnotic and it just in a state of nirvana, the ghostly lighting and the mystique of New York plays as a contributing factor to the film's beauty. And this juxtaposed with one of the best scores in cinematic history, that of Bernard Herrmann, who got, who got nominated for one of the four Oscars the film got, really brings you for a unique film experience and a discovery of perhaps more yourself than of Travis Bickle. De Niro started this film as a regular unknown and agreed to a fee of $30,000 for this movie, which for Hollywood and for a leading man is relatively low. However, during the production of this movie, De Niro won an Oscar for playing Don Corleone in The Godfather Part 2, instantly turning him into a Hollywood A-lister overnight. Now, Columbia Pictures was very worried about this film's themes and tones that Scorsese had pitched, and he was looking for any reason to exit the film, to cut ties with Scorsese. And they assumed that De Niro would ask for more money, and rightfully so as well, he's just won an Oscar, in which the studio would have gone no, and then they would have had a reason to cancel the movie. However, De Niro being De Niro said he would finish the film on the money that he agreed that he would be paid, which was 35000 
And this was mainly in spite of Scorsese and helping a friend out, a friend he lived in the same neighborhood with, grew up together. And this was just the start of the famous partnership in movies, which inspired other director-actor partnerships down the line. The caliber of these two, I think, really brings out the best in each other. Scorsese bagging De Niro his second Oscar for leading man this time for Raging Bull and shooting him even further in cinematic history with films like Goodfellas, Casino and the infamously long The Irishman. That being said, though, Scorsese's only won one Oscar, and it was one of the only films that De Niro wasn't in. It was the Eastern remake, The Departed, which I believe was in 2005, 2006, that ended up winning Scorsese his first Oscar as director. And that starred Leonardo DiCaprio, and thus them starting their own contemporary collaboration, starring in, I think, five or six movies together, might be seven, I'm not sure. I mean... Let me think, top of my head, there's Departed, Shutter Island, The Aviator, Gangs of New York, Wolf of Wall Street. I think that might be it. I'm sure there is another one. I know they're working on another one together, and that's got both Leo and Robert De Niro in it, so that'll be interesting. But, you know, De Niro and <clears throat> De Niro and Scorsese, them two shared a unique understanding between director and actor, and have produced some of the best films in cinematic history, Goodfellas and Taxi Driver, to name a few. Now, Robert De Niro started this contemporary idea of method acting in Hollywood with this extreme, you know, process of research and preparation for a particular role. He spent 15 hours a day for a in, in a, for you know 15 hours a day a month for a month driving cabs around New York. He managed to do it as a job. He even got his license as a taxi driver. And he said that not many people recognized him, but when he was doing it, when he just won his Oscar, he said that only one person actually recognized him by going, you just won an Oscar for Godfather. What are you doing driving cabs? Is the entertainment biz that bad? And other than that one guy, no one else knew. In fact, he said he was pretty much invisible to all of his passengers, just a voice in the front seat. And he also spent a lot of time studying mental illness and looking at the deconstructive paths people have to mundane triggers. And he rehearsed vigorously with Jodie Foster at cafe for hours to really cement their scenes together. And bear in mind, she was only 12 years old at the time of filming and she claimed she was so bored because he was constantly going over the same lines and the same scenes over and over again. However, as Jodie Foster got older, she had a new perspective of the matter. She understood the art of becoming a method actor and was in fact blessed and privileged to have that experience under an actor of Robert De Niro. So the movie does delve into a relatable subject about loneliness. When Paul wrote the screenplay, he believed what he was writing about was only about loneliness. But as the process went on, he realized he was writing about, you know, the pathology of loneliness. His theory being that for some reason, some young men, such as himself and of course, Travis Bickle, subconsciously push others away to maintain their isolation, even though the main source of their torment is that very isolation. And this is what he was trying to explore in this movie with Martin Scorsese's help, this vicious cycle that men seem to seem to be going through in that time period in America. And unfortunately, what many people now go through in terms of self-isolating to the world, although right now we don't have a choice of a global pandemic happening at the moment. It's a vibrant portrayal of a nightmare with somewhat rings true to what happens in the world right now. Scorsese says that this movie is a sort of limbo state with Travis, this place between sleeping and being awake. 
He looks at the world as dull and doesn't even know why. He's not really smart enough to really understand the real depth of his mental instability. He's seen as a social reject. He's like a walking contradiction. He talks about maintaining a good diet, yet pours booze on his porridge. And he talks about the scum of the women on the street and yet visits porno theatres. The only other sympathetic theme we have for Travis is that he's trying to save women in the movie. Women who may not need saving. We see both aspects of this, one who does and one who doesn't. And it's done so we can see both reactions to Travis's attempt to help. He creates a situation in his head for them to be saved, and yet it's only on his terms. Hence the arguments with Sybil Shepherd at the start. The movie really breaks to obsession, loneliness, and his attempt to fit in and how a man should be in the eyes of a masculine world. See, the sad thing about Travis is that he knows he's pushing people away, but it's a win-win situation for him as he doesn't as if he doesn't get the girl, then, you know, it doesn't matter to him because if he doesn't, then he can continue on this desirable, destructive path. That's another step forward onto the film's violent conclusion. Travis Bickle is a representation of a confused masculine character trying to give his life a purpose. Both women in this movie that trigger this train of thought are women going to the men for help. You know, when Travis is basically window shopping at Sybil Shepherd's workplace from a distance, which basically symbolizes a prized possession he can't have, which is framed beautifully, by the way, by Scorsese. You know, then she realizes that he's prowling on her, him watching her from him watching her from his taxi. She goes and reverts to a man who shoes him away verbally at the door. So she falls, you know, victim to a guy to get rid of Travis at the cab. And then again with Jodie Foster, she grabs a guy's hand when she notices that Travis is looking at her. And these imageries to Travis, these themes of status and masculinity begin to sink into his ego. And he thinks he must become more than what he is. And in his mind, he must become more masculine. And he ends up using violence to rid the world of this politician in the last bit of the movie, which in essence to him makes him more masculine and dominant. I mean, you know, that scene of Jodie Foster, however, it's never really addressed in the movie. Maybe her character being brainwashed by the pimp. I think, I think sport is the name of the pimp. I think, I mean, she is only 13 years old or her character is 13 years old in the movie. So it's highly possible she sees him as a father figure despite him pimping her out. And it's probably a case of Stockholm syndrome. She thinks her parents hate her and won't leave this pimp, ignores Travis's comment about this guy, even though he's right. You know, so once Jodie Foster ignores his comments, convinced that this vile snake loves her, you know, he has no authority anywhere, not even with a 13 year old girl. So he starts to turn to this path of destruction and forced authority. He fixates on this assassination of this political figure, which starts to give his life some purpose now, which at the start of the movie he never really had. He was just prowling the streets in his taxi night after night. We know his excessive loneliness from his attempts to communicate with women, like at the porno theatre and again with Sybil Shepherd and Jodie Foster. You know, his communication with men, he's just he just seems really dormant. He's not there in a world of his own, just there wasting space, trying to find meaning to his bleak surroundings that he himself has put himself through. He's become self-destructive and he isn't intelligent enough he isn't intelligent enough to know why, but instead goes with it. The famous You talking to me scene is a very accurate scene of mental instability and again loneliness. A lot of people who are lonely end up talking to themselves in the mirror a lot. And what Robert De Niro does this, he does this without even trying to convince us as the audience the acting is next to perfect. I mean, if you guys have seen Joaquin Phoenix's The Joker, I mean the film in which Robert De Niro is also in pays a heavy tribute to Taxi Driver in terms of the style of the movie and of course on whacking is talking to him in front of talking to himself in front of the mirror or practicing to go on the murray show which robert de niro actually plays these are all traits of a lonely man men trying to find some kind of purpose with their lives 
the whole you're talking to me scene, by the way, was completely ad-libbed by Robert De Niro. All the screenplay said was Travis looks into a mirror. That's all it said. It's safe to assume De Niro got his inspiration from Marlon Brando when he is mouthing his words in front of a mirror in the film Reflection of a Golden Eye. But that's an assumption. So towards the end of the movie, the other iconic scene is when Robert De Niro finally sports the mohawk to further emphasize the destructive path he has now chosen and decided to pursue. Now saying that, that's probably... That's probably where most of the violence comes from in the movie. I mean, the last scene, despite being criticized for its violence, only four characters actually die in the movie. I think you've got the arm robber in the corner shop that Travis shoots. Uh, the pimp gets killed, the mafioso, and then the doorman. And Robert De Niro's mohawk was not even real due to the fact that Robert De Niro still had to shoot scenes for the film with hair after the mohawk portion. So the makeup created a ball cap that was glued to Robert De Niro's head and the mohawk was made of thick horse hair. So the hair piece is on display at the Museum of the Moving Image in Astoria, New York, which is quite interesting. So De Niro, I don't think, has ever had a proper mohawk in his life despite making that particular hairstyle really famous in cinema. But yeah, the Mohawk does confirm the fact that he is in fact a Vietnam veteran, which was confirmed with Scorsese. There were others that speculated that he may not have been a veteran, instead just wearing the jacket for kicks. There was a Washington Post film critic called Stephen Hunter, and he speculated that Travis Bickle's character wasn't a Vietnam veteran at all, and his behaviours could indicate that a man so disturbed that he chose a war veteran look as a way to somehow connect to the post-war society. But the Mohawk is apparently inspired by soldiers in Vietnam who have their hair styled that way just before a major battle, which is why it confirms that he is or has been in Vietnam or a commando situation. The film is widely regarded as one of the greatest films of all time. The film is considered culturally, historically and aesthetically significant by the US Library of Congress and was selected for preservation in the National Film Registry in 1994. Now, that is quite an honour. It marks the last score done by the famous Bernard Herrmann, who famously did the iconic Psycho score. However, this final piece in Taxi Driver is on par with Psycho in the cinematic history books. He recorded for only two days for this movie, and he finished all of his work in that two days. And later, on the second day, the last day of filming, he died. And I think, I believe, the film is of a tribute to him. And along with the famous score, the movie offers an atmosphere that is unattractive and yet somehow familiar to people's lives. The feeling of a man driving around in taxi can be the late, in the late hours of night through Manhattan, wishing the rain would wash away all the prostitutes and scum on the street. Just reiterates the feeling of isolation, the cab acting as his safe zone, his comfort zone. It's a metaphor. He's basically a rat traveling through the dirt of the city like a rat travels through the sewage. He's around a lot of people and yet has no friends. In fact, the garbage in this movie is all for real because during the movie, New York had a strike with the garbage in the 70s, I believe. But for all intents and purposes, Travel Bickle is a bad guy. The audience is expected to go along with Travis's actions and champagne his vigilante crusade. But what Robert De Niro plays so well is that Travis truly believes in his cause. He thinks he is a noble hero and that killing is the best course of action. And we are cautiously sucked into his world. And this was done only because of the terms of cinematography, lighting, and of course, the music by Bernard Herrmann. The ending always raises eyebrows onto whether he is dead or not, or if he is imagined in the last image of Betsy. It was one of the Blu-ray commentaries that Martin Scorsese says that he acknowledges several critic interpretations of the film's ending as being Bickle's dying dream. 
He admits that the last scene of Bickle glancing at an unseen object implies that Bickle might fall into a rage of recklessness into the future, and he is like a ticking time bomb. He said that the movie doesn't end there and that it's not he's not probably going to be the hero next time. And that's exactly what the uh, screenplay Paul Schreiber said in one of the 30th anniversary DVDs. The film is probably Robert De Niro's best work simply because the film is in fact flawless. And for that, I mean, it doesn't try to emphasize a good guy. In fact, it does the reserve, it, it, it does the exact opposite. We try to see the deconstructive nature of a man who needs help. If you like Joker, then please watch this film, which more than likely inspired the grim backdrop of this realistic portrayal of a man's world. These days, things are a little more happy and somewhat sugar-coated in terms of how stories should be told. In fact, the genre of what Scorsese has done here, I don't think has really been discovered since when Todd Phillips did it with the Joker. And that's only because he used a famous and very contemporary-driven character, such as the Joker, to attract mainstream audiences. If it was based on a normal man... It would perhaps be another story. The only reason I like Joker besides Joaquin Phoenix's performance was the fact that it might invite fellow millennials and possible moviegoers that are ordinarily reserved to just watching Marvel and rom-com movies to venture out and see the origin of true cinema making that was going around in the 70s. Of course, right now, this period is becoming a tad dull, a tad depressing there is this sense of isolation and finding your feet again. So it is quite interesting to see how a movie may become relevant once again, even 40, 50 years later. And it's amazing as the decades go on to see what movies stick and what movies fly away. If you haven't seen Taxi Driver, it's on Sky or on Now TV. It's a great film. It's not really that violent. The film is all about the feeling of unease and just uncertainty. The character of Travis Bickle is by far one of the most compelling and interesting characters in cinema in terms of really exploring real mental instability. People want a reason to go see a movie. The trailer sometimes isn't enough and sometimes all you need is a friendly tip from a friend or even a podcast to nudge you in the right direction. In my opinion, though, this is Martin Scorsese's best film. Well, uh, that's all we have time for with Taxi Driver and more specifically Season 3. I'll be back with Season 4 where we're going to have a look at the noughties decade, an interesting part of cinema in terms of finding their feet, let's say. But anyways, I'm on Instagram, uh, film exploration, all lowercase, all one word. And I'm also um, subscribed to me on podcasts, on iTunes, Google, and also Spotify. And thank you again for listening to Taxi Driver with Film Exploration with Ashari. And thank you for listening to Season 3.